the Game of Thrones season six premiere is over, but we're just getting started here on the Game of Thrones post show recap on postshowrecaps.com. And now, here are the two guys that agree that a brand new Game of Thrones episode is one of the five best things in life. I'm Rob Sestrino, and here is Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? Welcome back. Top five, top five, baby. Top five, top five. yes. Top five, yeah. It really is one of the great great pleasures of life is a, a new episode of game of thrones certainly after a very 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 long off season we're back in business rob you bastard how you been been about 10 months since we had a new game of thrones episode to talk right. about but here we are tonight live april 24th 2016 and we are ready to go and josh uh, this is going to be a lot of fun to cover this uh with you of course that you are very much in the thick of this you have been reporting about game of thrones season six for many months now for the Hollywood Reporter, and yeah. now here we are. We Upgrade, are finally, right? yes, finally have the new episode, and we are, can talk about it for at last. Yeah, at last. No, it's been fun. I've been covering the show for THR for the past several months. Now we're really in the thick of it, so I'm up to my eyeballs in Game of Thrones and have been for a little while, but I'd been waiting for a new episode for a good little while. Rob, you and I, we saw this two weeks ago. We were at the world premiere in L.A. That was really cool, but you and I didn't... I don't. I feel like you and I didn't even really talk about it that much. Yeah, we really uh, so didn't get to speak a lot about it, and actually, I've we're actually... We are just like holding off for podcasting. Yeah, we've been holding off, and I actually wasn't able to talk to you for this whole time time from when I actually was on set and I don't know if you actually knew this because I wasn't credited in the episode but oh. I am actually old Melisandre's <laughs> body double oh yes oh well I thought that looked familiar yes uh, and I just couldn't place it because the face was different but that makes a lot of sense yeah well you know every morning I start you know I get naked and I look in the mirror and I say I should sure. just go back to bed yeah, and, and, and you this, put your your red your ruby red earbuds in, and you uh, you look like this. Yeah, yeah. No, this is actually that's actually what I look like when I take my shirt off. Uh, no, uh, there's <laughs> no necklace or anything like that. So it's a good and, look. It's better better look than me. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, very excited to talk about this. Of course, this is uh, the first of a plethora of Game of Thrones podcasts that we will bring you on postshowrecaps.com. We will have our feedback show coming up later on uh, on Wednesday. Of course, uh, Josh Wiggler, you will have the Game of Thrones book club, even though we're past the books. We're past the books. We're away from the books. But I think as a lot of book readers will have uh, will tell you after tonight, there's some commiserating that we're going to be needing to do throughout this season, I think. So at the very least, we're going to be doing that. Book Club podcast isn't going anywhere. It's staying here. Terry Schwartz and I are going to record on Tuesday afternoon. So you have until then to get us your questions. Postshowrecaps.com slash feedback or GOT at postshowrecaps.com. Okay, if you don't want to miss any of that, you can subscribe to our Game of Thrones podcast feed or our main show, Post Show Recaps feed. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes for everything or for just our Game of Thrones stuff. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. All right, let's start off with our top story at this hour. I know a lot of people, myself included, were expecting for the Jon Snow saga to have some sort of a resolution by the end of this first hour. Just like uh, Generalissimo uh, Francisco Franco, Jon Snow is still dead. Wow. Yeah, Jon Snow is still dead. You really thought that we were going to get resolution to that within this first episode, Rob. You thought that we would come back, Game of Thrones season six, very first thing, Jon Snow is going to sit up. He's going to be like, oh, what a terrible dream. It was awful. I dreamed that I got stabbed in the chest by Ollie, the worst. As I said in the road to Westeros, I thought we were going to start off, boy, Jon Snow is dead. And I thought at the end of this hour, in an episode entitled The Red Woman, I yeah. thought that Melisandre would resurrect Jon Snow 
at the end of this first hour. I felt like that that's where we were going, where we see her sort of in that last scene. I said, okay, here we go. Did not get that. He is still dead. And maybe I'm starting to have to prepare myself because I, I firmly believe that Jon Snow will be brought back to life at yeah. some point this season. But I think that we might be in for a long slog through the Jon Snow resurrection. Yeah, I don't know how long they can put it off if they're going to go there. And I'm with you. I totally agree. I think Jon Snow is coming back. I am as sure about that as I am about anything on this show, which is to say not very sure about a lot, considering there's really no book material to go off of anymore. I'm in the, as in the dark as anybody. But I feel like narratively it makes so much sense for John to come back. There's so many reasons for John to come back. We can dive into all of that if you want. We can, you know, pick that apart. I think a lot of people already know some of that stuff. But I think for me, what's going to be it, what's going to be interesting to see is how long it goes. If John does return, I think what's in the favor of the Jon Snow thing coming back right now is that it was a fairly quick period of time elapses in the Night's Watch story. It's really not more than, what, like 15 hours? It's really very kind of contained. So depending on where we are with the Night's Watch story next week or the week after that, if time is sort of moving at a crawl, then I think that that really plays in the favor of Jon Snow can come back. But I feel like that body's going to start decomposing. It's gonna, As Cersei will tell you, yeah. Right, she'll tell you all the gory details about that. So at a certain point, you got to assume that this has to happen fairly quickly. I would bet that within the next two or three episodes, I think by the end of episode three, we've got Jon Snow back in the land of the living. Uh, we will see what happens. Uh, Josh, that you mentioned, uh, you reported on it right after we saw the premiere episode that Kit Harrington's name is still in the credits. He did not get right. the Stephen Yun treatment. No, he is not hiding in a dumpster anywhere. They are keeping Kit Harrington's name in the credits. In the defense of Game of Thrones, that's sort of the tradition anyway. You know, thinking back to when Tywin Lannister gets killed in the season four finale and Charles Dance shows up as a corpse in the season five premiere, his name remains in the credits. So it and as far as I know, Tywin Lannister is not coming back. I think that that was pretty permanent. So I don't think that it's, you know, a, an end all be all that Kit Harrington's name is still in the opening credits. But it's there, so read into that as you will. Did he stay in the credits through all of season five? No, it's just for the episode that he appeared in. But that's the way that it goes with Game of Thrones most often, is if somebody's not in the episode, their name doesn't appear in the opening credits. Okay, let's talk Melisandre and what does this mean? That What was the significance for you to show her in that state, taking off the necklace and revealing herself to be quite old? Old. <laughs> really, really old. Shockingly old. Um, I think, you know, that was great that was really really fun that's the kind of thing that i'm i'm really excited about season six because it's going to surprise the hell out of me because there's so much that i don't know and there's so much that we just cannot predict based on the fact that there's no source material to judge on for so much of this right now the melisandre thing really excited me on that level because this is not in the books there's suggestion you know there it's it's hinted at there are certainly teases that melisandre is older than she lets on but this was a big flat-out reveal uh and it was very surprising it was very shocking i think in terms of where she is thematically you know where she is literally on the show too is she's really at a horrible low and she's tired and she's exhausted and everything that she's invested herself in has lost you know stannis dies that whole cause is gone she's completely incorrect about stannis being the chosen one um and then she comes back to the wall and it's probably she's thinking well at least i saw Jon snow in the fires at a battle at winterfell so i've got that horse to back now and suddenly Jon Snow is dead. So I think that she's really, really
really tired. We know now that she's really, really old. I think she's just exhausted emotionally and physically. And her going into bed at the end of that episode is just kind of really stressing the fact that things are really bleak right now for many of these characters. And I think Melisandre physically uh, exemplifies that the best of being this person who is thought of so sensually and seductively and is, you know, really the, the one of the most like physically attractive characters on the show. And that person is just completely torn down and worn down. So to see that example on your screen, I think, is a really cool symbol of the, of the state of the state of the union here in Westeros. That line where she says she saw Jon Snow fighting in the flames at Winterfell. Now, we haven't seen Jon Snow fighting at Winterfell since the premiere and he was yeah. sparring. So is that prophecy that Jon Snow is at? What did she see? Yeah, I mean, it, it, we know that Ms. Melisandre, she, you know, she looks into the fires, she sees things, she thinks she knows things, she feels like she can see into the future a little bit. Her prophecies come true. They don't always come true. I think that they often don't come true the way that she thinks that they're supposed to come true. Anything that she was thinking about Stannis being this superhero that she had really hyped him up to be obviously did not come through. Um, so I think that, you know, you got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Maybe she really did just see Jon Snow's Sparring at Winterfell. Maybe that's literally it. Um, but if you want to read more into it, and we certainly have proof positive that Melisandre is capable of magical stuff. We saw the Shadow Baby. We already knew that. And now we see that this whole hot Melisandre thing is a glamour. So we know that she's got some tricks up her sleeve. So if you want to believe that that sort of predictive power that she has is her misunderstanding things a little bit rather than than her, um, you know, having a ruse, pulling a ruse, I think that you, you got to imagine that there's something to come up with that. Um, what it's going to be, how that's going to come to bear, who the hell knows. But she certainly seemed to think that Jon Snow had a big part to play in things moving forward. Josh, something interesting that I saw, and I don't know if you've had a chance to watch this yet, is they do the HBO extra right after, the inside the episodes that they post right after it ends. And usually a lot of it is sort of fluff, but you hear from Benioff and Weiss. Sometimes it's interesting to hear what they were going for in a certain scene. And I thought it was actually very interesting how they described that scene with Melisandre. They talked about how she's looking in the mirror and she's seeing that her whole self is a lie. And every yeah. and she's and she's having to face that reality that everything about her is a lie to this point. And so I thought that that's a that wasn't my read on it in terms of watching the episode the whole way through. What does that mean for you just hearing that idea of looking at herself as a lie. Yeah, I think that, you know, it stresses this idea that everything that she has believed in is out the window. Uh, you know, wow. it's all it's all trash. It's in the dumpster. You know, she'd been fighting for all this like stuff. Glenn. And yeah, and it just did not come through for her. Uh, I think that that's really what it signifies. And I think that, yeah, for her, she is probably thinking all of this is bungus. Everything that I think that I am is nothing. I think that she is at a low. I don't think that we've ever seen Melisandre this low ever on the show and we saw her at a low in the season five finale she's really really rock bottom right now for my money that really puts her in a really great spot to do some good at some point in the near future i really do think that melisandre will be key in bringing Jon snow back and the fact that she is so old that she's so ancient makes me feel like that could be at her own expense like it could be you know an act like this could be something that would really be like a final act of magic for Melisandre. I feel like she would be cool with that at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's sort of where my head is at, that I think that something sort of sacrificial might be coming our way through Melisandre. Yeah, she did get the name of the episode 
uh, the Red Woman, which I feel like that she did not factor very much in the episode. I feel like that there's some added significance on her based on getting the title of the episode. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that that's definitely a good read. The titular so, character, if you the will. The titular character. The titular character. Yeah, she is often thought of as the Red Woman, and she gets the, you know, she gets the final scene of the episode, and it really was a jaw-dropper. I mean, watching that happen, it was kind of just like, oh, man. Oh, yeah. boy. Poor Gendry. <laughs> Gendry, yeah. Poor, poor Gendry. <laughs> Changes really everything. Tough. Changes everything. Now, how do you think that this plays out? Now, you have a couple things going on here. You have Thorne trying to make this deal with Davos. Uh, you also have the whole business with Dolores, Ed, uh, yeah. going out and trying to bring the wildlings back. But it's Davos who says, hey, we st- there's still the Red Woman. Still yeah. And usually he's kind of a, uh, a cynic about her, uh, even yeah. though he did see the smoke baby uh, come out of her. Uh, but right. he's like, hey, guys, hold on, hold on. We still have the red woman, uh, which sort of sets up that scene. So how do you think it plays out? Is it some combination of those all those things happening at once? That's the thing is this is such a powder keg, the situation at the Night's Watch, which is why I think it's going to play out fast. I think that things that are happening here, I don't think it's going to be much more than a couple of days. And that feels even a little long to me. It's just based on how fraught the situation is. You've got Thorn on one side of the door saying, open up, open up, let us in. And you've got Davos on the other side being like, I'm not letting you in unless you have mutton. You know, you have that whole that whole thing. And you've got Ed. He's on the run. He's looking for wildlings. And once the wildlings find out that Jon Snow is not only dead, but was killed the way he was. Can't imagine that's going to go very well for Alistair Thorne and everybody. On top of that, Jon Snow is dead. He is, you know, he is decomposing probably at this point. You know, things are already happening there. In order for him to come back and really be believably alive, that really does have to happen fairly soon. So how I see it playing out is I feel like, all of that stuff is going to explode. I feel like all of that is going to come to a head very, very quickly, possibly as soon as next week or the week after that at the most, I think. Um, And I feel like it's all, as it's coming to a head, as it's all kind of, you know, bashing into each other, I think that that's where you get Jon Snow. He's going to lurch awake and everyone is going to kind of be like, oh, well, uh, I didn't realize that we killed the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Clearly we, we goofed here. So I think that that's where we're headed. One of the things that we haven't talked about a lot with this story has been the role of Ghost in any of this. Uh, do you think that he will have some sort of a some sort of a part in the reanimating of Jon Snow, whether that, you know, there's uh, some idea that maybe Jon Snow could have warged into right. him. There's some uh, thought of maybe does Melisandre have to sacrifice ghosts to bring Jon Snow back? No, no because sacrificing ghosts. We can't lose any more dire wolves. He is really making a lot of noise throughout that whole opening scene. And I like to watch these shows with the closed captioning on. And there's a lot of yeah. mentions of ghost howling, ghost making noise, ghost growling. And so do you think that he is going to potentially have to be part of this uh, solution? Well, we know that the Dire Wolves and the Stark kids are really hooked in to each other. You know, Grey Wind used to know, like, everything wrong uh, ahead of Rob Stark. You know, even at the Red Wedding, Grey Wind is basically like, no, this isn't good. I can sense bad things are happening. Uh, we've certainly seen the really tight connection between Bran and Summer in the past. And even with John and Ghost, Ghost has really been John's ride or die, uh, ride or dire wolf. Uh, and I think that 
that we we know that that close relationship exists. So Ghost is really attuned to something like you know Jon Snow dying. He's really going to pick up on that. Um, there's a lot more of an emphasis on Jon Snow's potential as a warg in the books. We haven't really seen anything about that on the show. But I know a lot of people who have read the books really do think that the warging thing with Ghost that could be something that could lead the way to Jon coming back. I just feel like the show has done nothing with that with Jon as a character. That I'd be pretty surprised if that is somehow playing a role. Um, but I mean, how would that work? Do you think Rob is like, is Jon Snow in ghost right now? Is that your read on it? If that's the way that we're going, he was talking a lot. Yeah. He was talking. It's like, guys, it's me. Yeah. I'm Jon Snow. Yeah. Uh, I'm a dog now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was wondering how did they go and get him? It seemed like, uh, I guess that they, when they were dragging him back, they must've, uh, somebody's like, Oh, go get, go get the dire wolf. Right. If it was look who's talking now rules, who would be the voice of Ghost with Jon Snow inside? Would it just be Kit Harrington, or do we get somebody celebrity like Danny DeVito? Do we get a Diane Keaton in there? Uh, any of those would work for me. Any of those would work. Yeah, Danny DeVito as Ghost Jon Snow would be really good. Yeah, and from what I understand, those dogs also love mutton. Also, uh-huh, they love mutton. Gotta be who's careful mutton? if you're hiding the yeah. mutton around there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, anything else up at the wall you want to touch on before we start to bounce around? How who who's going to die in this situation? You got to imagine Thorne. some of these people that we know. Like Alistair Thorne has to be at the end of the rope here. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully, yeah. and Ollie right behind him. Man, Ollie is the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ollie, Ollie still sucks. He's really terrible. Yeah, I mean, do you think? I know you said that uh, you feel like that there will be some sort of like uh, most of these people that are at the Night's Watch are going to see Jon Snow come back to life and say, "Oh my God, I've made a terrible mistake." But yeah. do you think that there will be a sort of a, 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 the chance of a battle? Will a lot of these guys just get wiped out when the wildlings come back through? Will there be a reckoning? A reckoning, yeah, a reckoning could be coming to the Night's Watch. I feel like. There aren't going to be a lot of people left at the Night's Watch who aren't loyal to John if John comes back. I feel like that's going to be pretty cut and dry. Like, okay, let's fall in line behind the guy who was dead five minutes ago and is no longer dead, uh, who was conclusively dead just a few minutes ago. Let's probably take our orders from that guy. Uh, so whether or not that means that the Wildlings wipe out Alistair Thorne and all of the mutineers before John comes back, or if John were to come back and that really scares everybody straight, I'm not sure how it would play out, but I really don't think that there's going to be too many traitors uh, in the midst after Jon Snow comes back. Okay, If he comes back, hopefully he comes back. I don't mean to keep driving home like the false hope. If he doesn't, it's entirely possible that he doesn't. I just really feel like he's going to. Uh, let's go down into the north and talk about what going on at Winterfell and that was a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of last season where what was going to happen with Theon and Sansa we see them on the run and I think that probably the biggest pop in the episode has to be when they are making their way and they're captured by the uh by the Bolton men and it looks like they're going to be dragged back to uh the clutches of Ramsay and then here comes the cavalry in Brienne and Pod who then fight off everybody Uh, How huge of a moment was that for you? It was awesome. It was really, really great. I remember watching that, you know, next to you, like the whole moment where Brienne is pledging to Sansa and Sansa is incorporating her into her army and everything like that. I was like very close to the edge of tears. I thought this was a real tear jerking scene. I just didn't want to cry in front of you, Rob, because I wanted to be cool. Uh, But it was it was awesome. It was intense. It was it was a really great moment. It's great to see Sansa Stark get a very rare win. I feel like good things don't 
happen to Sansa very often, so the fact that something really great happened here, that was nice. And Brienne was just such a badass. You know, finally, Brienne, uh, you know, after abandoning her post to kill Stannis Baratheon uh, in the season five finale, you kind of had to wonder, like, is Brienne, did she just, like, completely miss the window here? Thankfully, she did not. Thankfully, she showed up just in the nick of time. So many horrible things have happened to Sansa, but to me, this feels like the beginning of a season of Sansa rising. Do you have the same read on that, or is that a dangerous way to think in Game of Thrones? I think it's a dangerous way to think uh, when it comes to Game of Thrones, and I think that even, you know, even the greatest triumph on this show isn't going to happen without some measure of tragedy. Mm -hmm. You know, even even if this is the season where Sansa finally things turn up for her, that's not going to happen without something else that's totally effed up happening. Like, that's just the way of Game of Thrones. Um, You know, she thinks that she can go to the wall and go hang out with Jon Snow and he'll help her, but whoops, he's dead. So, you know, like, that's that's the level of excitedness that we should ever have about any anything possibly good on this show that being said i feel like so many bad things have happened to sansa in the past we've seen sansa learn how to politically wheel and deal throughout her time on the show she's finally free of being somebody's hostage for the first time in a very very long time i feel like this is a good spot for sansa assuming she can get somewhere warm it looks pretty cold out there the north uh, or going to the wall seems like maybe the wrong direction for her just but, get her to a fire, you know, just get her warmed up a little. But just the fact that she's now paired up with Brienne, where finally that Brienne has something to do for the oh first time, uh, really, <laughs> since, uh, you know, she left the service of Jamie. Back yeah, in the- literally just staring at a candle throughout basically all of season five. Yeah. You know, that was really Brienne's whole thing. <laughs> but this is exciting that Sansa actually has somebody who is has her best interest in mind for maybe the first time since uh, all the way back in the first season. It's great. It's really I mean, Littlefinger, you got to imagine Littlefinger is team Sansa, but he's team Littlefinger at the end of the day. Yeah, still you know, pretty sleazy. Team, he, yeah, he's Team Sansa because he's Team Littlefinger. And Team Sansa means that Littlefinger moves forward. I think Brienne is purely Team Sansa. Brienne is, I am, uh, you know, I am honoring my oaths. I am keeping my oaths. Uh, I swore to Catelyn Stark that I'd protect you. I'm going to do that. I'm a woman of my word. And I think that it's really all about that. It's just about her service to Sansa. It's got nothing to do with Brienne herself. That's great. That's really good for Sansa to have somebody like that on her side. Certainly seems like Theon is in that mode as well right now, right? Like this is a a great night for Theon who finally came out of his shell in the season five finale when he throws the the total Miranda off the cliff and that's really great. Uh, But we didn't know if that was the start of something or if it was just a momentary thing. Based on how he acts in this episode, you got to imagine that Theon is all in on Sansa Stark as well. Seemingly Theon is back or as far back as he can get because as much of him as he can pull together. Right. He not only, you know, pushes Sansa to keep going and he takes her across the river. He decides to, you know, ford the river with her, not cock the wagon. No, you don't want to cock the wagon. Right. And uh, well, let me me not go there. Uh, And and then also go easy. Yeah. Then we also have where Theon decides, tries to sacrifice himself. It says, you know, she's gone. Take me. I'll go back to Ramsey. And then finally we see him take out a guy who is going to kill Podrick. So it seems as though Theon is all in as well. Do you think that this is the start of his service to Sansa as well? Or do you think that he's going to go off and have his own story here? Well, what would his story be? What would be what would be the next direction for that character to go in if it's not to continue on with Sansa? How do you see that working out? Well, is that how you get the Greyjoy angle back in the mix here? Does right. he head home? 
Right. But would that be him freelancing again? Would that be him being, you know, like returning to the Iron Islands because he's just like sick of being a part of this thing? He just wants to go and see his family again. Or is that going to be on behalf of Sansa if he does something like that? No, I can't. What what business does he have on behalf of Sansa? I feel like it would work. I feel like, you know, for him, he's really, you know, he's trying to I feel like he's trying to atone for a lot of that really crummy stuff that he did in the past. I feel like he wants to make good for Sansa. Then stay with Sansa. And right. follow her around. I, I think just that's be, how, that's just how you be do her that. reek. Yeah. yeah, because you know, not for anything that he got screwed over uh, pretty good by the uh, Greyjoys back in season two when he stormed Winterfell himself. It doesn't typically go well for Theon when he gets his family involved. Yeah, I feel like you know, it, for him, if they're going to get involved, let them get involved on their own. I don't know that Theon ought to be seeking that out on his own. It doesn't feel like it would work out well. All right, so uh, we'll see what hell happens ultimately with Sansa and Brienne. Any, anything else? Oh, well, let's talk about the Boltons as well. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of Ramsay's uh, Miranda? You Oh, uh, it seemed like, oh boy, Ramsey really cared about her. It seems like there's a whole side of him. And then he's like, ah, you know, what are you talking about, Barry? Her? That's good meat. Yeah, it's good meat. Feed her to the dogs. Yeah, feed her to the dogs. Yeah. Or, uh, but, you know, for the, uh, for Miranda, the stable girl, that's how she wanted to go out. Yeah, that was in her will. She's like, if I die, I want you to feed me to my dogs. <laughs> yes. That's what I want to have happen next. That's the next thing. It's unique. It's unique. Yeah. She's like, you get me, Ramsey. Yeah, at least it's original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, no, I think that, that that was, you know, I just thought that was a really funny button to that scene of like, you're finally seeing Ramsey be like a normal-ish guy for the first time for like Ramsey standards. Like this is Ramsey being gentle and emotional and sensitive and he's, you know, sharing how he's feeling and you really understand, you know, he 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 cared about this girl as much as Ramsey can care about anything other than himself. Uh, says that she's one of the few people on the planet who didn't like get frightened looking at him and had a very long history with this person. And then he just decides, yeah, but she could just get eaten by dogs. Yeah. Uh, so, like, that's the nicest Ramsey Bolton possible is he's still feeding you to dogs. And Roos ends up having a conversation with Ramsey and talks about really how badly he screwed things up. And while, yes, okay, Stannis is gone, but they lost Sansa, which was yeah. really the key to holding the North. She's gone. They also lost Theon, who was also kind of important for the Greyjoys, and now they're really starting to feel the heat because now they ended up really having taking Sansa on board was sort of a slap in the face to the Lannisters. That's going to be a factor of something that right. they have to deal with. And now the walls are starting to close in on them a little bit. Now, I don't want to go too far into the coming attractions, but they're talking about going to Castle Black. Uh, Why on earth? What do the Boltons need at Castle Black? Well, I think that if you think about it, you know, if Sansa and Theon survived that fall, evidence suggests that they did. You know, they sent out, uh, Ramsay sent out his best hounds. He sent out a search party. That search party caught up with Sansa. Obviously, that search party is no more, but they had enough to go on that clearly Sansa and Theon survived that fall. Where does Sansa go from here? What friends in the world does she possibly have here in the north there's a lot of different places in the north that the boltons can have their fingers on the pulse of but one of them is and it's a logical place would be castle black where her you know her half brother is the lord commander of the night's watch it would make a lot of sense for sansa to go there uh to seek protection from somebody from her own family from a brother of hers so i think for ramsey and Roos at that point it's like what's at least 
look at Castle Black. Let's at least consider mm-hmm. that option. Um, you know, what are they going to do in terms of going to Castle Black if they think that they're going to pick a fight with the Night's Watch? That would be a very bold move, I feel like. Bolton uh, move. Yeah, Bolton move. Uh, but, you know, the Boltons, they are, that's what they do. You know, they are opportunistic and they, they seize on moments that they think unconventionally. So, I could see it. I could see them going in that direction. All right. Let's talk about uh, the action that was uh, really taking place uh, between King's Landing and in Dorne. Uh, let's talk uh, about the uh, Sand Snakes uh, making their move. Yeah, finally. I mean, man, the Sand Snakes were, you know, they were totally defanged in season five. You know, I was very excited to see the Sand Snakes on the show and they really didn't measure up. And I remember back when you and I were recording feedback shows and stuff for season five that you really got a kick out of the Internet's reaction to the Sand Snakes. Internet hates the Sand Snakes. They're not, not really. in. A, I wonder how they feel about the Sand Snakes tonight. Uh, the Sand Snakes showed some teeth tonight. Yeah, I don't know. They really did uh, strike back in a big way. And so, uh, Josh, now as somebody who, you know, we've talked about a little bit and we don't have to explore too much of what goes on in the books, uh, that there is a lot of stuff that happens in Dorne differently. And now super uh, differently and and now a lot differently here. A lot differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had already been really different. This basically just kills uh, everything that we knew about the Dorne storyline is pretty much out the window. Um, So it's it was fun. I I think that the Dorne storyline just did not really work last year. Uh, and I think one of the big problems was nobody felt dangerous. You know, nobody felt like they really could cause a problem for anybody. You know, you get that final um, or that that initial conflict. You finally get an encounter between Jamie and Bronn and the Sand Snakes. And the only blood that is drawn is like a slight slash on the arm for Bronn, who ends up getting poisoned from that. But really nothing happens. And it just feels like one of the one of the lamest battles in the entirety of Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones does not have a lot of lame battles. Yeah. Um, and. And it really, for all the people who were involved in that altercation, it really could have been a lot cooler and should have been in terms of being true to those characters. I think that the course correction here to show up in the season six premiere with the Sand Snakes just offing people. Right. uh, That feels like maybe some people think that it's, you know, over course correction. I think that it's the right move. I think that that's what we were missing from Dorne is seeing these people actually capable of changing things up, not just having bark, but having some bite to back. So what you're saying is that tomorrow on the Game of Thrones Reddit, there won't be a video of Tristane getting stabbed through the face set to the Benny Hill music. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But maybe now that you put that out into the universe, it's going to exist. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Possibly. So uh, they really, they had like uh, two big moves. Uh, they ended up having the business uh, with uh, the murder of Prince Doran. Uh, uh, R.I.P. Dr. Bashir. Yeah. And Ariel Hota also yeah. goes down. Yeah. Yeah, that was a bummer. Very sad to see Ariel Hota go, I guess. You know, he's just that he never really did it on the show. Uh, that axe was supposed to be a lot cooler than it was, but he just gets like, you know, slammed in the back and it's done. It's done. And then uh, we see Tristane also that he ends that was up so gross. Yeah, he just got like totally faced. It was so nasty. Yeah, but r- oh, a real a shocking ending. moment of, you know, who which one of us uh, do you want to kill you? And yeah. then the line, uh, you know, uh, you greedy bitch that right, right. I, I was supposed to kill him. 
<laughs> yeah, it was great. It was sort of, you know, that funny kind of Indiana Jones sort of gag of like Indy is going up against the guy who's like twirling with his sword and everything. And you're expecting some big fight. And then Indiana Jones just pulls out the gun and shoots the guy. Yeah. Uh, spoilers for Indiana Jones. Uh, but that's basically, you know, you think that Tristane is going to have this big fight with one of the Sand Snakes, potentially both of the Sand Snakes. And then he just has his face rocked off immediately. Okay. Sucks. So, Josh, the Sand Snake storyline and everything from Dorn, where is this going here? I know they want revenge on the Lannisters, but it does seem like the Lannisters kind of have their hands full with the whole High Sparrow business. Yeah. I, how, how is this going to, what are we going to see play out? Great time for the Dornish to strike against the crown, right? I mean, while King's Landing is so busy, and I can't imagine that they really know that. I don't know how quickly word traveled that Cersei was in trouble with the High Sparrow and everything Mm -hmm. like that. But man, uh, really fortuitous timing in terms of Alaria Sand and her people deciding to take over Dorne, make this move, and let's kick some Lannister butt. Because you're right, the Lannisters absolutely have their hands full. They don't only have this High Sparrow situation, but there's also the very palpable, understandable, emotional grief that comes with losing a child. So I feel like uh, you know the, the Lannisters are going to have to pull that together really quick. Otherwise, the combination of the High Sparrow and the Dornish people is really going to it's going to rough them up pretty bad. So you feel like that this looks more like that Dorn is going to attack King's Landing more so than the Sand Snakes are going to attack the Lannisters. It seems like the Sand Snakes and Dorn are, you know, basically synonymous at this point. I mean, Prince Doran is dead. Ariohota is gone. Tristane is gone. All of the people that were Team Doran are deceased. And Ilaria Sand makes her move. And she even says when she's killing the prince, she says, um, you know, you you are so disconnected. You didn't even realize that people in your own court look at you like a weakling. Uh, weak men will never rule Dorne again. I think it's her declaration that the Sand Snakes are in charge. Do not talk to Dr. Bashir that way. I know, I know, I know. It's very sad. Very sad ending for Dr. Bashir. Stephen Fishback's favorite character on Game of Thrones. He's very upset about what happened to Prince Doran right now. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about the Lannister reaction to everything. And we got to see very sad moment when Cersei got to find out about Marcella and what happened to her in the season finale. And then uh, we get to see a scene with her and Jamie talking about this. But Josh, I'm really curious to know, how is Cersei going to internalize this news? Are we going to see a different Cersei or are we going to see a Cersei who is even more vindictive than the one that we've previously seen? I think that's that is the question. You know, that's the question surrounding Cersei is how does she react to losing a second child and now only having one left? And we certainly know that she is latching on to this prophecy, the Maggie the Frog prophecy. She's saying like, oh, yeah, that's real. F prophecy. Yeah, F prophecy. Uh, she's she's really buying into that at this point. Like, oh, you know, there's you know, Jamie, this wasn't your fault. It's unavoidable. The 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 woodland witch once upon a time told me about this thing. So this is just happening. This is just fate. So we already know that that's her her immediate reaction. Um, whether or not that's really going to drive her, and she's just going to be mourning and you know being really really deeply morbidly depressed and sidelined because of this that doesn't feel like cersei to me the cersei reaction 
to me feels like now you go nuclear, right? I mean, like now, now you only got one kid left at this point, your back is against the wall and you're just going to do whatever you can to protect that child, probably to that kid's detriment ultimately. But I feel like Cersei and Jamie, and you get it in the line from Jamie, who I'm really interested in your take on Jamie. Jamie to me feels like he is ready to go full Lannister. For Jamie, this, this was to have this happen right in front of him and to see Cersei hurt like this. And maybe for him, this is his chance to win Cersei back. Once again, after she seemed so down on him over the last season or two, then right. maybe that maybe that's his move. But I don't know. What is the bigger threat in your mind right now? The High Sparrow for the Lannisters or Dorne? High Sparrow right now. I mean, they're both big threats, but High Sparrow's in town. Uh, you know, the High Sparrow is here. He's got the Faith Militant. They have, you know, they have... The Dornish, they drew blood against the Lannisters in terms of they killed Marcella. That's a really big deal. But the Faith Militant arrested Cersei and forced her to march in the streets naked, shame, shame, shamefully, in front of everybody in King's Landing. And everybody in King's Landing seemingly loved it. Um, so popular opinion is already against the Lannisters on their home turf, where they physically are right now. They have to deal with that above all else. I thought it was interesting we got a scene from Marjorie tonight who's really been sidelined that she's locked up uh, in the High Sparrow headquarters and now that you know she's still there trying to get a confession out of her. We saw a scene with Marjorie. Uh, where do you think that this uh, Marjorie storyline is going? I have no idea. Um, you know, Marjorie, she seems like, do you think that she's, you know, the High Sparrow says something like, uh, you still got many miles to go, but it seems like the High Sparrow was impressed with her taking steps towards redemption a little bit. Is she going to be Team High Sparrow ultimately? Is she going to have to align with Cersei? I'm not really sure where this is going. It would be interesting to see the Tyrells have to work with the Lannisters, but it, feel, it felt to me a little bit like there was almost something paternal between the High Sparrow and Marjorie, at least that that's the direction that maybe she is going to be leaning into a little bit. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we saw the Queen of Thorns involved with this a little bit last season, but it'll be interesting to see if they get them back. I mean, do the Tyrells decide to, do they go full confession and do they end up... Confess! Confess! Yeah, do they end up trying to turn this around on the Lannisters? What's, What's their play in all this or do they have to... You know, to try to defeat the High Sparrow, do we have to see another uneasy truce between uh, the Lion and the Rose? Right. I think that a big part of this is going to be whatever is going on with Loris. You know, we didn't see Loris. I think Marjorie could only play ball and the Queen of Thorns could only play ball for so long as long as things are okay with Loris. Uh, And I don't know how they talk the High Sparrow out of being harsh against that guy. Uh, You know, the High Sparrow does not seem to look kindly on Loris' sexuality. Is that going to be ultimately a really, really, really um, impossible to reverse situation for him? And I think that once we see what the reaction there is, once we find out what the High Sparrow's plan for Loris is going to be, I think that'll dictate to us whether or not the Tyrells could possibly play ball with the High Sparrow. Okay. Ready to go east? Yeah, of course. Let's go east. Let's ride. All right. I guess the uh, top story at this hour, uh, Danny is uh, in the custody of the Dothraki, and she is headed to go and live out her days in some sort of a senior living, uh, senior assisted living community. <laughs> Of the widows of all of the calls. 
Yeah, apparently uh, she is going to Vias Dothrak, where she is going to have to hang out with the fellow widowed Khaleesi for the rest of her days. And I think now we know that that is going to be definitively the direction that Daenerys Targaryen's story goes in. She's never going to make it to Westeros. Spoiler alert, she's just going to be hanging out in a community with fellow widows for the rest of her life. It's going to be great. Riveting stuff. (laughs) You know, the other women uh, that hang out with uh, that call over there, uh, Kyle Morrow, is that his name? Kyle Morrow, yeah. Kyle Morrow. Uh, that they really, like, um, you know, they're really haters, all of those women. And uh, they're talking about to cut her head off, cut her head off. And that's how, uh, the, you know, the Kyle knows that she's uh, very beautiful. But they're right. really, like, even at the end when they're like, you have to go live with all the widows. <laughs> <laughs> like, they yeah. really, you know, at first I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound so bad, but they're really uh, making it sound like it's uh, not that fun. It's like, oh, man, you haven't met the widows yet. Those people are depressing. Uh, it's going to be really unenjoyable for you when you have to go and live with those people. Yeah, they know something Danny doesn't know. Uh, but yeah, they seem really jealous of Danny. They seem to not like her very much. But we've seen how Danny can make friends and influence people in the past. Who knows? Like maybe she'll win them over. She's been, you know, she's been really good with the, with the Dothraki in the past. It's probably an easy place to find her if that we ever have that, uh, you know, Jorah and Dario get a rescue mission and they try to figure out like, oh, okay, she's with, with the Dothraki. Where would she be? Like, oh, they have a place where they bring all the widows of the former calls and let's right. go there. Rather than just like with some random horde. Yeah, I feel like that's probably, you know, if they know the Dothraki as well as we can probably assume that they do, Jorah, from having lived with them for a while, they might have a decent idea of where things might go next for Danny. Uh, I feel like that rescue mission, that's going to that's got to go into effect pretty soon here, right? You would have think so. Uh, Just with Danny and uh, Kyle Morrow, how great was uh, the scene with uh, uh, Kyle Morrow ranking the greatest things in life? (laughs) Yeah. What, what, do you have the list in front of you of what he ranked as the best? I do not. We can get yeah. that in order for the feedback show later on this yeah. week and we could uh, weigh in on that. Yeah, and I'd like to know if that's just like if that's just Cal Morrow individually or if most Dothraki would agree with what that top five baby <laughs> list looks like. Yeah, uh, that was really great. I like this character so far. You know, it's it's I think that it's fun to see the Dothraki back in the mix. They add a lot of gruff energy. They're very rude people. Uh, the things that they were saying about Danny, not very kind, not super polite. Um, but there is sort of this rawness to the Dothraki that we haven't really seen on the show since they were super prominent in season one that feels kind of nostalgic seeing these guys back in the mix i like that call moro is like totally in on call drogo he was like a big call drogo fan yeah. apparently so he's like oh Fanboy. danny i didn't know oh that sucks uh so I, I he seems like he's on the level he seems like a decent dude meanwhile back in marine you know i was pumped up for the varus and Tyrion show uh to right. get going we ended up seeing them just sort of walking around, sort of getting a lay of the land. Definitely a funny scene where Varys is telling Tyrion that the woman thinks he's trying to eat the baby. Yeah. Get in my belly. Yeah, he's going to just try to eat the child. Yeah. Who knew? I ate a baby. <laughs> I ate a baby. Yeah. Uh, but I think that even Tyrion and Varys walking around and talking, you know, that's still some of the most compelling stuff we saw in the entire episode. And that's not a knock against anything else from the episodes. Just when those two are together and they're talking shop, your eyes are glued to it. Like, you just can't look away. Now, the thing that I took away from their conversation, I thought that was the most interesting, where Varys talks about how, boy, 
The Sons of the Harpy seem to be well-funded. Somebody is giving orders to the Sons of the Harpy. Do you think that it is possible that it is anybody we know, or it's just going to be that, okay, there is some big bad master that we're going to learn about? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, When you think about, like, who the possible candidates of that could be, like, does anyone immediately come to mind that we've come across here on Game of Thrones, especially in the Esso storyline? Littlefinger. Littlefinger? Could no, Littlefinger no, be no, funding no, the no Sons money. of the Harpy? No I mean, who's got the money to do that that we know of? Um, nobody comes to mind immediately off the top of my head, but that's why it will probably be somebody that we know because it's just going to be like this big left, you know, left field blind side that none of us are going to see coming. But pretty much all the major characters are pretty preoccupied with their own things to be running the Sons of the Harpies, right? Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine that like Dario Naharis has time to like work that thing out. And also run the Sons of the Harpy. You would think like, so. That's just, he's got a lot to handle well, on his own. The other thing that I thought was of note besides uh, all of these ships burning was that they end up stumbling upon a somebody who is uh, preaching about the Lord of Light. And basically that that is seemingly catching on in Danny's absence. What do you think that has to do uh, in terms of people switching over and becoming part of uh, you know followers of the Lord of Light? We also saw last season... Right. Uh, where Tyrion, right, where he was first uh, in the brothel that there was, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a red priestess there. Yeah. And so, I mean, this has been a thing that's been simmering on Game of Thrones for a little while. Uh, this story of the red priest and R'hllor and the Lord of Light and everything like that. Um, the fact that, you know, this episode is called The Red Woman ends with this big Melisandre moment. We know that she is, you know, she is the lead advocate for the Lord of Light on the show as far as people that we've met. But that's starting to expand a little bit. It. There's that woman in Volantis we see last season. There's this silver fox red priest here in this episode. I mean, come on, man. That guy looked great. Uh, you know, he's got he's got his own thing that he's preaching here as well. So it definitely has my eye. Uh, you know, it, it, it has me interested that the red priest thing seems to be a big deal on the show or a developing big deal. This is based on a series of books called A Song of Ice and Fire. The ice stuff is pretty well established. There's the Night's King and the White Walkers north of the Wall and and that threat is coming. We've seen fire with the dragons, of course, uh, but there's an actual religion that is based around fire, and some of those people exist in Westeros where winter has arrived, pretty much. Um, the fact that that's building up more and more here in Essos suggests that that, that storyline is going to be pretty widespread. It's going to be pretty global. So I don't know how that factors in everything, but definitely something that we need to be watching. Okay, and then Jorah and Dario are on the hunt. They end up finding the ring that Danny dropped in in the season finale. Are you enjoying the broad trip between Jorah and Dario? Yeah, I mean, like, it seems like these guys who uh, have been romantic rivals, it feels like they got, they've got more in common than they think. You know, even Dario's like, hey, Jorah, I want to be you when I grow up. Yeah. You seem like a pretty cool guy. And Jorah's like, yeah, you don't want this one thing that I've got, though. Yeah. This little this little spot of cootie that I have developing on my forearm. That's it's really right. not great. Yeah. yeah. So that looked like it was getting pretty bad. It does look like it's gone uh, really got a whole forearm thing going on. Yeah, this is like this is the 24 thing. This is the ticking clock. He is the Jack Bauer of this season. He's just got this horrible virus that's festering within him. You got to imagine that bomb goes off. Yeah, I thought you were going to say he was the George Mason of this. Yeah, season. that's probably the better comparison. Yeah, he's he kind of even looks like George Mason a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Jorah Mason. He's going to have to fly the dragon with the bomb. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's going to kick Danny off. He's like, I know how to fly one of these things. Yeah. Give me I can do it. Give me the uh, bucket of wildfire 
flyer. I'll go right. and drop it off. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at the ma- on the masters. Okay. Uh, and then uh, let's check in with Aria, who just gets a beating from Aria too. Boy, I really got a good hate into this Aria too. Is there really anything else to talk about with that Aria storyline other than Aria two? You are the worst. You are such a jerk. Yeah. Why are you beating up this poor blind girl? Right. Now, did Arya get kicked out of the uh, the House of Black and White? Um, you know, we don't really know what the details are of that. You know, she gets blinded at the end of season five. She's in the Hall of Faces when that happens. And then the very next thing we see is she's groveling on the street. Uh, I think that the fact that Arya, too, is checking in on her... I don't think that that's just out of spite. I think that training is still going on. Uh, she says, I'll see you tomorrow. Unless it's that Arya, too, has a real hate into Arya, and it is literally just her kicking her around for no reason Yeah, at I'm all. on my break. I, I, Let me come down here and give you a beat yeah, down. Yeah, lunch, lunch break. Time to go beat up Arya Stark. Uh, you know, that's not impossible, but I think what's more likely is that this is further training for Arya and that being blind is supposed to open up some new doors for her. I do feel that my takeaway is, though, that the Arya blindness is temporary. Do you get that uh-huh. same feeling? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that, you know, especially if that's the way that it's going, where it's, um, you know, if this is further training, we blinded you to like kind of, you know, see things through a little bit more. Uh, that would be my read on it as well. I think when she graduates, when she becomes no one, that's when she's going to start to see again. It's like, oh, I can see again. This is great. Okay. Uh, anything well, else you want to touch on before we jump into some of the questions from the people watching us live? Got a great live audience right now. Oh, that's awesome. No, let's hop into it. Let's waste no more time. Let's talk to the people. Okay. I'm very curious to get everybody's take on the episode. All right. Why don't you get us started here with James Snow? Uh, James Snow. Yeah, John's brother. James Snow says, if Mel can repel 10 million viewers so easily, what chance do 40 Nights Watchmen have? Ah, so sad. Yeah. That's so sad. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what's gonna what's Mel, Melisandre's move going to be? Because Davos is like, yeah, we've got a red woman. We're going to be able to take these guys down. Like, are they going to do another shadow baby thing? And if so, who's, uh, who's the Who, lucky guy? Who's the father of the shadow baby? Yeah, who's the father? Who's the daddy? Yeah, boy. Daddy Davos. Yeah. Uh, does she wear the necklace or no? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to see. We'll have to figure that out. Yeah. This is from Baronessa. High Sparrow was playing good cop to the nasty bad cop, except a big a-hole. <laughs> wow, is that, is that the official name? Yeah, I mean, uh, that is not the official name. I did write it Sept- down. Uh, Septa Unella. Yes. Yeah. Um, he, that's always what he does. He's always yeah. the good cop. He's always playing good cop. He's always playing, you know, I think that even when he's being really stern, he has this sort of paternal thing about him where he's fairly mild-mannered. Uh, so yeah, I feel like Septa Unella, she's really the one, like, you don't want to be after school with Septa Unella. That's a really bad time. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, Robert Miller wants to know, was anyone else disappointed by the killing of Duran and Ariel Hota this early? We didn't get to see them do anything. Yeah, I know. I think that with the way that they were just shaped in season five, you know, I think that just from the jump, they just never really got that storyline right. And, you know, if they were able to pivot with the Sand Snakes here, maybe theoretically they could have pivoted with Ario and Prince Doran and everything there. Uh, For me, I just feel like I would rather the Sand Snakes have some teeth. And if that comes at the expense of these two characters, I can live with that. Yeah, it seems like that the Doran stuff was always pretty talky. And so at least they're just... Just sort of just feels like they're just taking the papers and just like like all right yeah. let's just let's just clear the deck on this and hit the reset button move on yeah. from here 
Yeah, I think so. This is more on Dorn from Sarah Blackfire, who says, so any idea where the Dorn plot is going, if we see more of Alaria and the Sand Snakes this season, will Alaria take over ruling Dorn, or maybe will someone poison her? Um, yeah, I think that we're going to see Alaria Sand being, you know, queen of Dorn. I think that she is going to be, you know, looking at Dorn as hers at this point, and she's going to be leading the way. It does seem like the gender thing is a big deal in Dorne, where she even says, like, never again will a weak man rule Dorne, where yeah. the history of Dorne, I feel like, is all about, you know, strong women. And I think that right. we're going to see where uh, Ilaria ends up, like, bringing the Dornish army into this. Yeah, no, the the history of Dorne, I can't recommend enough. The uh, the World of Ice and Fire, which is like this big coffee table book from George R. R. Martin and uh, the people behind Westeros.org that they released, uh, I think like a year ago, a year and a half ago at this point. And there's a great, great, great section on the history of Dorne and how that all came to be. Very strong women characters in there. I think that we're seeing a rebirth of that on the show at the very least. John Stevens says, apparently growing up in Winterfell prevents you from dying of hypothermia. Well, I mean, I think yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, they're just really used to the cold. That's why the Starks are better prepared for this than anybody else. Yeah, uh, that's why they say winter is coming. They're always they're you know literally spending their entire lives getting ready for this. Yeah, thing. Uh, but it did look really, really, really super cold. Yeah, in, in yeah I mean it's scene. cold, and and winter is coming. It's getting colder. Winter, yeah. winter is coming. That scene was shot in the summer, actually, uh, according to the actors. So it was apparently it was pretty warm while they were doing all of that stuff. So good, good on you, TV show, making it look really, really cold. Geek Furious says, the best thing about this episode was that virtually none of it will be in the next novel. And they constructed it well enough that it was fun to watch. I think it's the best of both worlds for book readers who don't want to be spoiled too much. Uh, yeah. This is, this is a, probably a controversial take. But what do you think about this as an a staunch book reader, Josh? Well, Geek Furious knows because Geek Furious listens to those book club podcasts. He knows that I'm on board with that. Like that is that is the way that I view Game of Thrones. At this point, Game of Thrones is its own thing. A Song of Ice and Fire is its own thing that may never get finished. Uh, and at, so at a certain point, you have to disconnect the two. And there have been a lot of differences between the two already anyway. So much that is faithful, if not exactly to the plot, then at least tonally is very, very faithful. But we're just at a point where there are no books right now to adapt. And this show has to move forward one season per year it has to happen hbo has a ton invested in this and i think for benioff and weiss david benioff and dan weiss who write the show i think that it's got to be pretty liberating for them probably scary on some level but liberating on another that they can really just tell the story the way they want to tell it and the way that the show has already been paced out with so many deviations in the past really necessitates the show paving its own way forward in a way that is probably going to look really really different from the books I'm really good with that. I know a lot of people are not, but I, you know, I'm pretty agnostic about that. I think when, whenever that next book comes out, hopefully it's going to be really, really good and exciting when filled with its own surprises. Um, and the show so far in this one episode, to me, proves that when it can just veer off into its own territory, it's still very engaging and exciting. So I'm with Geek Furious. I'm really happy about it. I think it is the best of both worlds. Josh, I'm sure you must have written about this for The Hollywood Reporter, but there was news this week about what the final episodes of Game of Thrones could look like following this season of a season seven that would be split up into two years of like a, you know, a block of seven episodes and a block of six episodes. Uh, Were you thumbs up or thumbs down about that idea? 
I'm with whatever whatever they want to do. Uh, you know, if if they if if Benioff and Weiss and I I got to email with them a little bit back and forth. There's a story about that on THR uh, of them saying between 10 and 15 episodes left after season six is done. That's where their head is at at this point. I feel like we'll find out officially sometime soon. I hope um, if that's where they think, if they think that that's all that they need to finish up this story. They've paced this really, really well so far. I'm up for that. I also think that whenever Game of Thrones ends, you know, reset the watch and wait for that next Ice and Fire TV show. You know, I feel like we are not going to be done with Westeros for a long time, but I think that this particular story is set in Westeros. I do feel like it's got an expiration date, and to me it's exciting that it might be coming up fairly soon. You know, I think that that can only be good that we're getting into some endgame stuff. It means that this should be a pretty fast season. Then let's get into It's Really. What powers does the gem in Melisandre's necklace have more than keeping her look young? Can any of those powers somehow bring Jon Snow back? In terms of everything we know in the Game of Thrones mythology, did that speak to you, the jewel in the center of that necklace? No, nothing off the top of my head. Maybe she puts the amulet around Jon Snow's neck and it just like weekend it burnies him and he's now just like up and about. And he, and and he like, dances when there's yeah. music playing? Right, yeah, he's like the he's like the toaster in Ghostbusters 2 when you put the pink slime in. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Uh yeah. who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Uh, what about uh Shanker Pad? All right, Shanker Pad says, "Do all red priestesses use glamours alter their appearance to seduce or manipulate their targets?" Uh I don't know, maybe. I mean, they all seem to be very very attractive. Uh and maybe they're uh, underneath all of this, who knows. Oh boy, that would really change everything. Yeah, yeah. You just really can't trust those red priests. You just don't know what they look like underneath it all. Once again from Geek Furious, is Melisandre's next glamour becoming Jon Snow? Whoa, what about that? What if Melisandre just becomes Jon Snow? She's like, I, I'm going to be him now. That's going to be my move. Um, I'm going ma- to make myself look like Kit Harrington. So Jon Snow will be dead. Uh, I guess we're getting a little like uh, lost like now. So now it's not actually Jon Snow. It's Melisandre inhabiting Jon Snow's body. So Jon Snow is dead. Jon Snow is dead. But Kit Harington will continue as Melisandre's character. That's that's the theory. That's <laughs> that'd be wild. That'd be boy, wild. I don't know. Boy, I don't know. I think I would ship that one. I don't know if I would ship that one off to Samoa. I think that maybe we could leave that on the bench. Yeah. Well, Melisandre in Jon Snow's body. That might truly be the song of ice and fire. Yeah, that could be. That could be the one. Yeah. Uh, who knows? It's a. It's not a. Not a leading theory for me. Okay, uh, what about It's Really wants to know, uh, why didn't Jamie turn around when Marcella started dying on the boat? They were so close to the shore. Wouldn't he wanted to try to get some help on land, or he knew that they, uh, who poisoned her, would rather sail to King's Landing? Wouldn't that be a bad idea, though, to sail back to Dorne after they assassinated Marcella? Yeah, because then at that point they're like, ooh, this is awkward, and then they probably assassinate Jamie, right? Yeah. <laughs> I he still... turns around and immediately gets assassinated. My big question is about the sand snakes that were stowaways in the boat. Yeah, continuity is not on the side of this. Uh, you Weren't know, they HBO, all on the shore with... Uh, yeah, they were on the dock. They were on the dock watching that ship go away. Uh, and, you know, HBO did their whole big Game of Thrones marathon today and over the weekend. And I was re-watching that scene where Hilaria Sand, like, rubs the lipstick off and takes the antidote and everything. She's got all three of the sand snakes with her in that scene. And suddenly two of them have just found their way onto the ship with Tristane. I don't know. You know, you just at some point you just, like, gotta look past 
past that, but continuity error. You know, the continuity police are probably. Okay, so then cool. after they wiped off the lipstick, then they got in another boat. They followed mm-hmm. that boat. Jet to boat. Landing. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then when it went, and then when it docked, then they snuck on. Yeah, that's what happened. That's and how nobody from King's Landing saw the you know some random no, sand snakes. So. It just went completely went completely over their heads. R- rowing a boat over there. <laughs> okay, uh, let's take some more of these uh, Twitter questions. Okay, uh, Arya's training has taken a, a Jedi like turn. I can't see a thing uh, without the blast shield down. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> what do you think of that? Yeah, that's, that's what she's doing. I mean, that would be fun to see her on like the deck of the Millennium Falcon, just like uh, battling lasers off and getting yelled at by Wookies. Yeah, uh, spicy wasabi. Wants to know, are you in on the sand snakes now? Do they redeem themselves, Josh? I'm curious. I'm I want to I'm definitely more in on them than I have been in the past. You know, this is the most exciting sand snake stuff that we've seen on the show, period. Uh, so I'm curious. I'm curious to see where this goes. I have been burned by Dorn before, so I'm not getting too excited. It's yet. Very hot there. <laughs> very hot. Yeah, I got a really nasty sunburn. What happens first? This is from Bradley Huffer. Cersei brings war to Dorne or Dorne brings war to King's Landing? Uh, I think that, you know, I think that Dorne, I feel like Dorne at this point is interested in making proactive moves. I feel like we are seeing that from Alaria's actions in this episode. I think that Alaria is incentivized to move against Cersei and Jaime and the Lannisters. She wants to shut that down. Um, so that's where that's where my head is at. I think that they're going to be making a move at some point this season. Muffin that sucks wants to know. So the line <laughs> of succession in Dorne includes the bastard whore of the king's dead brother. Apparently, yeah. Or you know, at a certain point, you just take that ish by force. <laughs> and like, who's left to really argue you on that? <laughs> okay. You know? Like, I think eventually, like, when Hilaria's just going around poisoning and stabbing people, you're kind of just like, oh, yeah, Khaleesi. She you know, means business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just fall in line. Uh, yeah. Derek Blaze wants to know, uh, does it seem out of character for Thorne to give an ultimatum to Davos? Uh, I feel like he would just kill them. Yeah. I, I, you know, if, if, if Thorne is the guy that Davos is saying, like, oh, we should not open that door. He's just going to kill us. Uh, if that read is accurate, what what's really the big deal? Why can't they just knock that door down? Why don't they just barge in and kill all the people inside of there? If that's really what Thorne wants to do, why isn't he just doing it right now? Does Thorne know that Stannis is dead? Is there some sort of, like, a deference that he's paying to Davos? Oh, that's possible, where he's like, I don't want to piss off Stannis. Like, right. Uh, if Stannis is still out there, like I really don't want to kill his second in command. That could be really and bad. Maybe, that Stannis guy's a real. Yeah. Real maybe dweeb. Thorne is also sort of sensitive to that. Does he think that you know the Lannister claim to the throne is Bupkis and feels like that Stannis is the rightful king? And so you know, let me at least you know I, I don't know. We'd have to go back and take a look. What does uh, Thorne know? And maybe it's unclear. Yeah, I think it's unclear right now. I mean, Davos really didn't spend a ton of time at the wall after being sent there by Stannis. Mm-hmm. I think all of that kind of happened pretty quickly. And to my knowledge, there's not a Thorn and Davos scene uh, of just the two of them talking about stuff. Yeah. That'd be a great yeah. scene, though. Okay. Yeah. Just like eating mutton. Yeah. <laughs> Try the mutton. It's great. All it's right. really good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the people we did not the see MLTs. tonight. Okay, we did yeah. not see Bran tonight. I think that that's probably going to be uh, high up on the priority list for next week's episode. Looks like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bran is making his big comeback this season, but they are just continuing to hype it up by pushing it off one more week. So the Bran show waits at least another week. 
I think whenever that comes in, it's going to be pretty good. He got the Aria treatment who did not appear in the premiere episode last season. There's a lot of masters to serve here on Game of not Thrones. Not just in Marine. Know? Not just in Marine. Just generally when you look at the show. Lots of characters. Lots of storylines. So not everybody's going to make it in every episode. Okay. Uh, anybody else that was a notable absence for you in the premiere? No Samwell. Yeah, no, no Sam. Sam. No, they're still, they're, we're just heading south. It's just happening. We're on the road with Gilly. Uh, so nothing there. No White Walker action. Not yet. Got to imagine that'll come up at some point soon. Those guys must be getting close. Okay, Josh, could you give us a preview of some of the things you're working on for Hollywood Reporter? Sure. So I, you know, my recap is up there right now. I had a chat with Liam Cunningham, who plays Davos. That's currently published. Uh, I have a piece going up in a couple of hours as of this recording. Uh, If you're listening to the audio archives, it's probably up already. That is talking to a bunch of people who are just sort of weighing in on the fact that, yeah, Jon Snow's dead. That's where we are right now. That's how that's the that's the lay of the land. Um, Tomorrow on Monday, I will have a piece that goes a little deeper into the Sansa and Theon scene and Brienne scene from this past episode uh, and lots of other stuff coming throughout the week. It's going to be very fun stuff. Heavy amounts of reporting on The Hollywood Reporter from Josh Wiggler on Game of Thrones content throughout the season. Very exciting stuff. Other than following at Round Howard on Twitter, what's the easiest way to access all that? I don't know. Make a URL, Rob. You, <laughs> can, right. you can get the get the magical webmasters on that. The webmasters. Okay. Uh, the webmasters uh, will work yeah. on that. We'll have that uh, nailed down uh, for you uh, by the feedback show, and we'll also post it in the podcast uh, show notes here on postshowrecaps.com. Of course, feedback show is coming up. We take your emails. We take your phone calls. Uh, we take your comments, and we answer them all in one feedback show. Send your emails to got at postshowrecaps.com or go to postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. Perfect. Good stuff. And yeah, get those book club questions in by Tuesday morning at the latest. Terry Schwartz and I are going to be recording on Tuesday afternoon. How do people send in a book book club club question? Same idea? Same idea. Just make sure you're saying spoiler or book club in the subject line and we will know which podcast you are talking about. All right. Uh, There you go, Josh. What's the hashtag? Ooh, hashtag. What does the what does the chat room say? Any suggestions from you guys? Anything good? What about Ryder Direwolf? <laughs> Ryder Direwolf? I'm up I'm up for that. Yeah, right. we'll see. I think that Ghost really is a Ryder Direwolf. Okay. All right. So let's go with that. And then of course, uh you can subscribe to our Game of Thrones podcast. Make sure you don't miss any of it by going to postshowrecaps.com slash G O T iTunes or search for post show recaps Game of Thrones in your favorite podcast catcher and of course we do appreciate that uh we post show recaps uh we're looking to uh, be nominated for the tv and film podcast of the year you could do that at podcastawards.com for your consideration consider it and then do it just do it (laughs) yeah you know you want to all right thanks so much to alex kidwell behind the scenes for pulling so many of those questions greatly appreciate that josh anything else Nothing else. That's it. That's everything. All right. We'll talk to you all in the feedback and the book club shows during the week. See more at postshowrecaps.com. Take care. Have a great night, everybody. Bye.